0: It's Cofield and Company in the Finley Toyota Studio
1: on ESPN Las Vegas. All right, here we go on a Thursday. Cofield and Company. Damon is here as uh, the guy steering the ship and the company. What's going on, buddy? Oh, none much. A
2: fun day, uh, you know. <laughs> working some things out here in studio. We we're close. We're getting close.
1: Okay, good. That's good news. Uh, you got your Aces shirt on tonight. So uh, or right now, you going tonight? You change your mind? You're going to
2: go? Oh no, I'm not going. Ask but the hard you... questions. No, no,
1: no. But I'm Mine. you know I'm wearing the
2: shirt in solidarity. You okay. know, letting everybody know who I'm rooting for.
1: They need to win. They do. I mean, it's not the end of the season. If they don't, they're 27 and four. But uh, losing to the Liberty three times in a row, and especially if they get blown off the floor like they did earlier in the week. Not good. Although I do think this can, as I said yesterday, turn into a positive. Becky Hammond can use this as a lightning rod, but you would think they'd be max motivated tonight. So we'll get to the Aces a little later on, and we got the game right here on ESPN Las Vegas after Cofield and company with the pregame starting uh, shortly after the show. So lots of football to get to. You know, it's kind of weird. The uh, Raiders are... Down around L.A., they're in L.A., uh, You know, Rams joint practice. I didn't see a lot of reports today out of joint practice. It was a little bit strange. Yesterday was super busy. Today, uh, not as much. Uh, we did get some audio, though, so we're going to play some Jimmy Garoppolo and some McDaniels, and you know, they do have a game coming up over the weekend. But I wanted to start out with some football kind of along the lines where we started yesterday, and we should be shouting out hometown heroes. And yesterday we gave a little – Shine to DTR, Dorian Thompson Robinson, who, of course, was a Gorman quarterback, went to UCLA, uh, had a good career. And then, as I pointed out yesterday, Chip Kelly went out and got another quarterback who was probably going to supplant, or at least split time at worst, uh, DTR. And then that kid backed out of his commitment, or maybe Kelly told him to buzz off. And then DTR has an awesome year for UCLA, and it continues UCLA's kind of steady rise. And the people criticized Chip Kelly. The last couple of years, they've been more stout. They run the ball. They've been better. We'll see what they are this year. But DTR had a great year last year, and that ended all that stuff about, well, if he goes to the NFL, I mean, he's going to be a wide receiver. Now he wants to play quarterback, and he's got enough believers in the National Football League that it got him drafted, and now he's a backup with the Browns, which is a weird situation. Clearly, for the money, they're paying uh, – Deshaun Watson, Watson's going to get every chance. Like, let's not build this up as, like, some yeah. – they're going to pull the plug after four games. They've invested $260 million in the guy. And I also think he deserves the time. I know everyone gets uncomfortable when you say uh, Deshaun Watson deserves anything. Uh, put all the other, you know, extracurricular activities bordering on illegal uh, to the side. Deshaun Watson needs time. He got he got back last year. He didn't play well. This is the go time now, and he's going to need a little time to um, – you know, get back to a high level. The problem is, Damon, in that division, there's no easy marks now because I think the Steelers went through their transition year and it actually turned out to be a pretty good year because they weren't, it really, wasn't like a three win transition year. So maybe Pickett is ready to go. I don't love Pickett, but, um, you know, they got through it. We know the Bengals are freaking good. Um, I think Lamar Jackson with a contract and more weapons around him, they're going to be good. And last year they had one of those years where the Ravens, you know, they play it by the book, what we think is the right book, and that is the analytics book. Like, you – well, I don't want to say aggressive because I always get yelled at here. Uh, by analytics, what Harbaugh does is actually the safe play. By going against analytics, that would be rolling the dice. But everything went against –
2: That's the dumbest against, thing
1: I've ever uh, Hill, Believe me, <laughs> when Adam Hill is in, and right now he's in L.A., he's trying to get a feature done with uh, Derek Carr at Saints and uh, Chargers. Practice. No, the the way analytics people look at it is, hey, these are the numbers. You don't really have to stray from the numbers. When you stray from the numbers, that's the risky move. When you stick with the numbers and go for it on fourth and short and the percentages say, hey, you're going to make it more, um, more often than not, that's the safe move. But anyway, everything backfired last year on Harbaugh a bunch of times. It just didn't work out. Execution wasn't there. Play calling wasn't there. And what it's set up now is a division where I think we all believe the Browns were pretty solid. But to be 9, 10, 11-win Browns and compete with the other teams, Deshaun Watson's got to be Deshaun Watson of three years ago. I don't know that that's going to happen. Anyway, with the Steelers, they always draft well. And they always draft well on defense. And we know they're pretty special when it comes to drafting wide receivers. So they already have Deontay Johnson. They've got Pickens, George Pickens on the verge, a kid out of Georgia, on the verge of becoming maybe that elite 70 catch, 1,200 yard guy with 10 touchdowns. And, you know, they made an interesting move while so many teams out there, like the Raiders went. I'm not going to say Michael Mayer's not a well rounded tight end because I think he's going to be pretty solid in the, uh, you know, the power department blocking. But there are so many teams out there that want the Kyle Pitts. And Mayer's a hell of a pass catcher. I mean, he was elite at Notre Dame. And then uh, another guy, another hometown hero. We'll have to do another portion of a show on how Dalton Kincaid's doing so far. But those seem to be the tight ends that people want. So when Darnell Washington, from Vegas, out of Desert Pines, you know, we see him sort of play – I don't know, 50-50 sometimes, 60-40, 70-30, sometimes him on the wrong side of Brock Bowers, right? Brock Bowers is the the glamour guy and the guy Mm -hmm. everyone expects to be that next great pass-catching tight end in the NFL. There's something that's still developing about Washington, and I think people look at him and are like, well, is he a tight end or is this the kind of guy who's such a freaking great athlete that we could actually get him up to like 310 and he would be, you know, an all-time great right tackle. I think there's still a zone where they don't know what they're going to do with him. But the Steelers drafted him, and they're seeing his athleticism. Did you watch the video that I put in the rundown? Oh, yeah, that one-handed catch? I think that's the type of stuff he could have been doing at Georgia the whole time. I agree. I think – listen, going to Georgia is not a bad thing. It gets you drafted. But I think there were some other situations where, I mean, probably (laughs) – we could probably go – you know, George is the one rare case where they happen to have a guy who is the complete package and a, and a future pro first-round pick. Darnell Washington probably could have gone just about anywhere and been an absolute stud with a lot of pass catching. So I I think a lot of it's untapped. But he's 6'7", 266 pounds, and as athletic is, you know, a 240-pounder. He has a chance to be freaking awesome. And at worst, he's going to be what? a bulldozing sixth offensive lineman who can catch passes.
2: Yeah. I still think he was a little draft. He was drafted too low.
1: I think, I think he got drafted drafted too low. I, I agree. I agree. So there were some videos out yesterday. I just wanted to bring that up. Another local kid. And, you know, we've had so many talented dudes the last like three, four years who are going into the NFL. And, you know, when you have, I mean, think about it, right. DTR. And then we, we just mentioned Dalton Kincaid and, and now Darnell Washington, and obviously there's some other guys who are going to make waves. We're, we're going to see what the uh, Ramondre Stevenson does now that he's three, four years in the league. There's a lot of star players coming out of Vegas, and I'm, I don't like the Steelers, uh, so I don't want everyone else to do well, but I'm rooting for Darnell Washington to uh, kick some booty. Now, maybe he could have gone to the Pac-12, right? And and in that league, where it's the the, the league of quarterbacks, or it was, as long as it exists, and it's going to be this year, uh, maybe he would have shined brighter. Like Dalton Kincaid at Utah, right? And, you know, A yep. guy who got a, a lot of targets. It's gotten real quiet, hasn't it? With the Pac-12 and the rumors. So what are you feeling right now? That
2: nothing's happening. That's why it's so quiet. There is nothing. I think the ACC realized that'd be silly if we just picked up two schools all the way on the West Coast. You know, mm-hmm. scheduling-wise, it, yeah, it... It makes sense, but not too much sense. And then after that, there's no plan for the rest of these teams. George, George doesn't, know, he doesn't know what he's doing. You know, they don't want to make – I think that this is from the Pac-12 side. They don't want to take that step down and merge with the Mountain West in their eyes where you're looking at four people – well, four teams, four schools that don't have, you know, a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out of but still can look down at the Mountain West and say, yeah, but we're not that desperate yet.
1: I mean, you got four teams left in the Pac-12, and they're looking around, and all the chairs got filled, and they're like, well, we still have some value. And I think they're trying to drive the bus, but the teams that could hop on the bus are like, "Eh, we got it pretty good right now. And I think the other big factor is if you find a way to pay a buyout, like the Mountain West Conference teams are going to have to get something done financially. If you find a way to put up a buyout, and then Stanford's like, yeah, we hate this. Cause you know behind the scenes they're gonna be working to get to the Big Ten the whole time. And it's sort of dependent on what happens with Notre Dame. My guess is the Big Ten will they're gonna make another run at Notre Dame. And I'm not sure who the second the partner team would be, a partner school, would be with Notre Dame. But if some of their you know lofty ideas, if they make runs at whatever, Clemson, someone like that, and that falls through. Stanford would probably be the next team up. You know, kind of like-minded school from an academic standpoint. Stanford and Notre Dame play every year, so they're, they're like-minded as well. So there's got to be a trust factor here. Here's what I've seen the last couple of days, and these are, these are just rumors. And, I mean, I believe there's been a discussion involving something with the Pac-4, a good portion, if not all, of the Mountain West Conference, and a lot of the AAC. Because my belief is the American Athletic is the teams that have been there are looking and they're like, okay, so we just lost uh, just lost Cincinnati and Houston and Central Florida. And we watch someone from uh, not related to our conference in BYU. They all got to the the promised land. They got the Power Five, and now they bumped a bunch of schools up with us. But we were we we consider ourselves like better than FAU and. Former Louisiana Lafayette, now Louisiana, and like we're better than UAB. So then you got AAC teams looking and they're like, well, we want to get to a little bit higher level like Houston did, like Central Florida did. So there's some interest there. So I think there's been conversation with the Pac-12, the Mountain West, and the AAC. I have no idea who's driving the bus. Apparently the Pac-12 has a bunch of reserve money here because of all the other schools that left. So they might have hundreds of millions they're dealing with, and that's why they want to keep this thing together. As of now, they still have the playoff spot for next year. Uh, does, that, does that just does that end after next year? It's not even for next year. I mean, on the surface, they have it because that's been the agreement. But the uh, the guys who are running this the uh, college football playoff have said we will review this because obviously the landscape of college football has changed, which means hey, that we were dealing with the Pac twelve now it's the Pac four, so. Not even that's guaranteed. And then the interesting thing here is where UNLV falls. Is another massive conference reorganization going to result in UNLV in what could be sort of a final Power Five conference? Or will they be left out? And to be left out, I think, is a real slap in the face with all the improvements the school has made in terms of facilities and investing in the programs investing in coaches, you know, Barry was making, you know, a lot more than Tony Sanchez did and a good amount more than Arroyo did. And the staff has paid better. You know, they've invested money in, in basketball and, you know, you can bet the second that they make the tournament the running rebels, make the tournament and they're winning 24 games. They're going to have to reinvest in that. So there's been more of a commitment. This was one of the, again, these are just rumors are unfounded, Just stuff people throw out. They might have one source who's involved. Someone, you know, six spots down the line. The latest Pac-12 idea could be Stanford, Cal, Washington State, Oregon State. Memphis, SMU, South Florida, and Tulane. Boise State is the Mountain West. Just taking four teams. Not a merger. Boise State, Colorado State, San Diego State, and UNLV. Okay. But I've also seen models where it's those three schools without UNLV and Fresno State is in there.
2: Yeah, that that just doesn't sound like a good football conference because we know that football – The one I just read? uh, The one I just read you? That's definitely – You're not going to keep your Power 5 status with that conference. It's
1: a mix of – I think every school in the group, I'll say except Tulane, has a good investment in their football program. Cal is a little bit of a weird deal because they're so in debt, but they're they're trying. But unfortunately, they spent on facilities, and now they're like 200 mil in the hole on the redesign of their stadium. Um, you can see where Tulane's a match because a lot of these schools are above average ac- academic institutions. They're not all. In that class, but then I, you know, I sent you over another one, which was the Pac-16, and you know nowhere to be found. It's a giant West and a giant East, and most of the East is all AAC teams, and then the West would be Stanford, Washington State, North Texas, and UTSA would ha- somehow make it in. Cal, Boise State, San Diego State, CSU, and Stanford.
2: Where'd you find this graphic at?
1: I just find these things.
2: Okay, because there's also It looks official, doesn't it? For, yeah, for the it's listening got the audience. Apple logo it's and it's got ESPN. the Apple logo and ESPN at the bottom. I was like, oh. what is
1: this? And then the other divisions like East Carolina, Florida, Atlantic, Rice. I'm like, wait, the the PAC actually it's a pack eighteen, by the way. They're nine team divisions, so I don't well, know, man. It's crazy right now.
2: Would this have something to do with it Condoleezza Rice and George Bush? SMU and you, what was kind Con- what was the school that Condoleezza Stanford. Was? Stanford? Yes,
1: you've read that too, right? Yes, that those two have been kind of making some calls and pitching hard on behalf of SMU and Stanford.
2: Yeah, like this is this maybe the Pac-18 could be the brainchild oh, right, right. of those two coming together.
1: It's weird, and I, I think I skipped over Tulane. Tulane's in there too, so yeah, yeah. It's all for grabs now. It's all for grabs now. Um, <laughs> I want to get to some Raiders sound here in a couple of minutes. Because we heard from Josh McDaniels today. We heard from Jimmy G. But before that, one of my favorite characters on social media is this big fella named Joe Morley, who's a big Raiders fan. And he's like, he's figured out how to use TikTok, frankly, better than I can. Um, and he's, he's making videos all the time. And he's not like, he's not a traditional broadcaster, but there's an enthusiasm. And he got all jacked up over the whole Max Crosby Cam Akers thing where Akers and Crosby got into it, and then Crosby kind of made a definitive statement about hey, you know, it was time to get the team fired up, and he got what he got. So here's Joe Morley, TikTok raider star, firing on this and uh, getting into Cam Akers.
3: Cam Akers,
2: Max Crosby's not messing around this year. Cam Akers found out today during joint
3: practice. Cam Akers took offense to Max Crosby, trying to knock a ball out of his hand. And he didn't like that. So he came after Max Crosby, and punches
2: were thrown. Cam Akers was thrown out of practice. Max Crosby was sat down. But don't mess with Max Crosby. Here's what he had to say about it.
1: i just doing what I do. Uh, he didn't like that, so you know, he got what he got. A
2: little... Crosby's on a mission this year. Cam Akers, you better learn how to fight, because with that offensive line, you're going to be getting hit a lot this
1: season. Yeah! big joe <laughs> oh, yeah. i like the passion don't be jealous don't be jealous just because he mastered tiktok and he's got the time he had his, his head on the shot he had got the video it was good production
2: value so he used cap cut for the video I, and bit, recorded himself over it we're not gonna rip on him we're uh, not doing it hey man if he's got the raider nation listening
1: he does. You know, he's got a good, he's got a good uh, fan base. Shout out to him. Uh, he was out in front of Allegiant the other day. The wind was blowing 500 miles an hour. Someone was video, you know, videoing for him. I was going to have the uh, vast sound crew. You know, We've got uh, dozens here pulling sound for us. Uh, we're going to have them pull it, but it was a little tough to hear. But, yeah, look up Joe Morley. M-O-R-L-E-Y. Love the guy. Big fella. A lot of passion. Don't laugh. <laughs> Don't, Don't laugh. laugh. I mean, hey. These are developing stars. These could be future LV sports networkers. Uh-huh. What happens when he has to say something critical about the team? <laughs> <laughs> um, I I, I bet you I can find something from last year. I bet you got on him a little bit. Are you saying he's a homer?
2: Uh, yeah. And then what happens when he has to worry hater. about his
1: relationship with said team? Hater, hater. Um. Uh, so the Max Crosby <laughs> thing with Cam Akers, I pushed back a little bit yesterday because really no one else is going to because they all love Max Crosby and I don't dislike him, but. Um, you know, there is a process here going on. You're doing these joint practices because you want to get things done. And when guys start fighting and you have to toss people out, it gets a little counterproductive. So on the way back, I want uh, everyone to hear from Josh McDaniels, and he's going to talk about his relationship with Sean McVay and kind of that cooperation to make sure things are getting done, even though some players are kind of taking it on their own and going, you know what, it's time to fight. It's time to put a lightning rod out there, is it? Now. Back
0: to Cofield and Company in the Finley Toyota Studio
1: on ESPN Las Vegas. All right, rolling on on Thursday. Demont here. It's Cofield. We're going to talk to Xavier Pope about a couple of things. Big stories the last couple of days with that Michael Orr deal with the blind side, the former Ravens lineman who went to Ole Miss, and the claims on both sides that, well, from Orr's side that the Toohey family, who gave over the story to Michael Lewis and they made that movie, that the Toohey side... Held all the money, all the profits, all the benefits away from the kid, who's not a kid anymore, and uh, and then the Tui side is like, eh, we didn't really make any money here, so I don't know what you're talking about, and we didn't plan on using the kid, so that's a good legal battle, and there's a lot of depth to that story, so we'll get to that in a few minutes. So I'm guessing I might be the only person I don't like. I don't like to come on the air. I should as a radio guy and be like, I'm the only one saying this because I got the (laughs) nuts to do it. But I don't do that. Um, But I, I, I do find this, the Max Crosby thing the other day with Cam Akers, I think is really interesting because everyone is so bought in on Max Crosby that pretty much everything he does, yay Max. Max knows what he's doing. Don't ever question him. Right, and it goes back to what we saw now in the quarterback documentary. Like, is Patrick Mahomes a whiny puss for complaining in the game to Crosby? Really, both games, or maybe Max was doing something that was a little over the line. Like, we can view this objectively. We can analyze it. Most people are not going to do that. And in this thing yesterday, I just thought it was weird for Max Crosby to basically admit, like, yeah, I did it on purpose because I wanted to. Because uh, the team needed it, and it, like if you're on the Rams, you're like, "What do you mean, you needed it? Like, what if you hurt our running back? Why are you getting into fights? We're here to work, bro. Are we pros? But again, you're not gonna get a, you're not gonna get any of that from Raider Nation, from Raiders fans. And there's gonna be a lot of media people who are just gonna see it like Max told it, right? So I was curious to see what McDaniel's and McVay were gonna say. They didn't really address anything specifically, but. What McDaniels did talk about today is how these joint practices work and that he's got a relationship with McVay. So let's listen to this.
3: I think it's important to have a few of those across the league. Um, you know, we've done that from afar um, before, you know, where, you know, and that was a little harder because he was on West Coast time and I was on East Coast time, but now we're both in the same time zone. So it makes it a little bit easier to communicate, if you will. Um You know, and and I think just you know, give give me your opinion on on some of the things we're doing. I'm interested to hear, you know, maybe some of his thoughts at the end of this week. Um, You know, we don't play one another this year during the regular season, so you know, it's it's just helpful to have somebody else who's really really good in their field uh, be able to put eyes on your team and then give you some positive, critical feedback of something that maybe will help you. So um, I trust his opinion, his judgment. Uh, He's been a great friend to me for a long time, and. Um, you know look forward to that
1: okay so that was that a cut 300 uh no that was a 299 okay all right we got another one here in a second so the beginning made it sound like uh, we, you know a couple of those fights across the league are a good thing. he was talking about putting together joint practices and that in the past it wasn't as easy with the, you know the Patriots proper east now Patriots West are' a lot closer to mcVeigh and we know that mcVeigh and Belichick have a lot of respect for each other you know so much it's funny so much of this stuff around the NFL Um, I'm not going to bang on the whole Nepo quality of these things where families have generations that are in the league, but the McVeigh family is kind of a legendary family in the league going back to the 70s. So you know Belichick is an older guy. He knows them. So the youngest guy in uh, Sean McVeigh is going to get respect. They befriend him. So the Patriots group, which is now you know here, Ziegler and McDaniels, they have a lot of respect for McVeigh. So he follows it up. And just talks about the, the importance of communication between the coaches.
3: I think that's that's how you do a, a good one. You know what I mean? That's how you can execute it properly. So uh, we spent a lot of time before that, um, you know, speaking to one another about how we wanted it to go and, and and tweaking some things here and there. Spent time last night talking about some different things too. So Sean's a first-class uh, man and, and coach and Obviously, he's got a great organization here. He runs a, you know, a really crisp, clean practice, um, and it was great to work with him today. I'm looking forward to it today.
1: All right, there you go. So, the importance of doing it right, and you know, I'll also say this: there is a scant possibility. I mean, I think it's kind of risky. I think it's real risky. But Devon, there is a scant possibility that. Now I don't think they would go as far as set it up, but I'm what set I- up the fight. Uh, well, you know, Akers is a really interesting case from last year. Remember, he was AWOL for a while. I think it's a little far to say, hey, the coach has worked out. Yeah, You know what? If Max gets a chance, you know, send some messages. I'm cool with that on the McVay side. Um, but instead, it turns into, I'm sure he was like, okay, well, no one got hurt. You know, messages are sent. I just wonder at a point if uh, it's going over the line where you're like, all right, now it's becoming counterproductive uh, in these practices, so.
2: That's why when you think every about fight it. In, every fight in camp is counterproductive. Pro Football Talk put out a piece where it's like the NFL, they know that this could, this could end badly. Yeah. Why don't they step in and take action now before that happens? Because
1: the coaches don't want them to. Because the coaches don't want them to. Coaches would scream bloody murder. I mean, there are times when coaches, and, and they, it actually did a couple of years ago when the Raiders and Rams got into it, like real heavily, um, there was some annoyance, I think, on the Rams side. But the coaches see some good in this as long as it doesn't get out of control. That's why you see on Hard Knocks every year. I mean, I, I wasn't... Um, yeah, it was... Robert little... Sala was joking about it this last episode, right? Or was it the first episode? Kind of like... this past episode. Yeah. Like, uh, probably need to get into it a little bit. You know, let's not get anyone hurt, but... Like, it, or gets, to a, it gets to a point... Um, Aaron Donald swinging his helmet. That's that's where that talk of the league jumping in, uh, you know, do the teams police themselves? Or like, hey, fellas, now we're seeing Aaron Donald swing his helmet. Now you've lost control. But the coaches, the coaches want this. It's funny out at, at UNLV practice today. Barry Odom was talking afterwards about you know it's around practice twelve here, you know guys are starting to get a little bit tired, um, and sometimes you know maybe the the uh, the zeal the zest isn't there in practice, and that switch needs to be flipped. <laughs> Again, it's a, but it's a dangerous game. You don't want to get someone hurt. But I just I thought it was interesting with Crosby where he's like, yeah, I did it because we needed it. Tough luck. Uh, by the way, Cam Akers came back. You saw that tweet? Yeah, I saw his tweet. Uh, and was like, you did what? Like, I, can someone point out what you did to me? Like, I don't I don't get it. Right? Akers uh, tweeting earlier today, and uh, yeah, Crosby said, I was just doing what I do. He didn't like that, so he got what he got. And Cam Akers was like, somebody ask him, um, what was it I got? Anybody with eyes anybody with eyes saw what happened. Right. Or, so he got nothing. That's what he's saying. He he got Well, he felt he got nothing. To like, be don't honest, be don't be a tough guy and say, you know, I gave you what I wanted to, and you're like, you gave me nothing.
2: You punch me with my helmet on, what'd you really do? Yeah. Right? I mean
1: yeah. By the way, there is another there is another side to these skirmishes, right? Like there's some pride on the other side. Like I don't six five, two seventy guy, I don't care. Even if I'm, you know, in Cam Akers' case, what is he freaking five eight and he's like yeah, you know, two eighteen. He's a freaking truck. He's a fire hydrant. Like, you're not just gonna take it, and then let the media run with it. Like, Cam Akers got his ass kicked. By the way, there wasn't video. Did you have we seen video yet? There were a couple still shots. No video. So it makes it sound like Max Crosby just beat the living crap out of Cam Akers. Like, if I'm the if I'm the other player, I'm like, what? Who said that? But that's what Max kind of suggested. All right, on the way back, let's get into uh, the beginning of our conversation with Xavier Pope, attorney out of Chicago, cultural contributor on this. There, there's a lot of depth to this man. There's a lot of depth to this and and you know, you remember that Blindside movie? There's a lot of people watch that movie and they were like, "Oh, the white heroic family, isn't that nice? Yeah, I don't want to watch that crap." Boy, your host of Suit Up News, legal and cultural contributor Xavier Pope is live on Cofield and Company. All right, much to get into today on Thursday, Damon is here. It's Cofield. Xavier is in Chicago. What's up, buddy? Xavier! Hey, what up? What's up, man? Um, All right, well, you know, we have a bunch of stuff to get into, so let's get into what's going on with this uh, Michael Orr case. It's like three days in now. Uh, What's your best understanding of this whole thing on the front end? What is the former Raven and, uh, you know, good story that was made into a movie? What is he claiming the family did to him?
0: Claiming that he defrauded them of, of basically signing over various financial rights over to uh, to his family, um, and I think that his, uh, he, he, he basically found out the difference between someone being your parents and saying, hey, we're your parents, <laughs> and and him being comfortable with that with them and, the, and that in the conservatorship um, and confusing that. Um, this happens to so many athletes, by different advisors, different different entities that take advantage of them, that try to tell them that's one thing, what the nature of that relationship is, Normally it's a fiduciary relationship. And so really a conservatorship is essentially some form of a fiduciary relationship. They have responsibilities to take care of monies in relation to you. And they take it for themselves. Um, This has happened to athletes. Um, (laughs) Since the beginning of time, this happened to a slew of athletes like uh, in in the nineties, athletes as well, that changed some of the way that um, certain agencies were, uh, certain forms of agency was, was governed. And so, uh, this is an old. This is the oldest thing since since beginning of uh, professional athletes. I think that this is not a new tale, but it's a, it's a sad tale because it's a movie made out of it. Sandra Bullock made it got an Oscar out of it, and it's coming to light um, due to this suit. Hmm.
1: I saw an independent attorney not involved in the case said uh, he really didn't understand why Michael Orr even needed to be. Uh, involved in a conservatorship and uh, they said, I expect that we're going to find out that it was a financial tool for the two East to profit. The two East side has said, I mean, we made some money off of this, but some of the monies were distributed, but we didn't make anywhere near the money that Michael Orr is asking for, like $15 million. Uh, the family may have made $700,000, so the story's somewhere in between, probably, I guess, but what do you think? Are you, are you immediately running to the side of Orr and going, hey, this family victimized him? Well, that's the nature of discovery, right, Steve? Uh, you figure out where the money is,
0: where the money went, and then you figure out what the nature of the damages are in relation to a suit like Ours. Um And so, and that's, and that's where you start. I mean, we won't know the full determination of the fact until there's some exchange of discovery between both parties.
1: Did you see some of the stuff from Michael Lewis, who actually wrote the movie? Uh, what did he say? I mean, he really hammered Michael Orr. But then the other thing is he made... He, he sort of suggested that the two E's and Michael Orr are both victims of Hollywood, that Hollywood gave the two E's basically nothing. Uh, even if they gave or nothing, they made most of the money off of this. And he suggested that Michael Orr needs to go on strike with SAG aftra almost serving as a writer. Cause it was his story. Uh, what do you make of that angle? That, that they're both victims in that Hollywood screw. I
0: think it's a serve, uh, be honest. Uh, it isn't someone who probably has his work now being in question, and now it feels like the integrity of, is, is damaged and he doesn't want to be the person that people point the finger at. That's what it looks like to me.
2: How much does the factor of this just feels wrong helps Michael Orr's case in the in the in the public, you know, in public appeal, where it's just it just feels wrong because no matter who got the money, Hollywood, this, that, or the other, he thought he was adopted and he wasn't. That's the end point for me, where it just feels gross as a former frosty
0: kid who made good um and I, I can relate to a story like michael Orr, it, it just feels good to have a story that turns out good for someone who came in a certain challenging circumstances so people are we're rooting for him in the beginning and then to have this come out you're on a still root for the guy i mean anyone like that would take the two side in this inherently and call michael or the fraud uh i think it's patently absurd we saw uh, Jason Whitlock do that, but that's his his stick taking in the sides of terrible white people that take advantage of African Americans in various forms of politics, social and <laughs> social justice, you name it, to denigrate African Americans. His his comments are pretty disgusting, acting like Michael Orr was the one that was being fraudulent instead of the other way around.
1: I saw you tweet out, um, I don't watch white savior movies. What does that mean? Yeah. Well,
0: there are plenty of them. In history, they just basically show like, like, like it basically come out, come comes out of the blue, saves the day, uh, looks so great. Uh, we don't need those type of stories in Hollywood. We don't need those type of stories in society when we have a society that is still seeking to have a more perfect union. How about some some, some, some black saviors, some some brown saviors, some some Asian saviors? Uh, I, I don't I don't think that genre really helps anyone other than people who need to be reflected back to them. Um, what society is pressing on them needs to be changed about society. Uh, it's great to have great people out there doing the great work, but that doesn't need to be spotlighted of, of a more important issues.
2: What's vision. more absurd that a white family taught a six foot five black kid in Memphis how to play football or than Green Book, a, um, a white man taught a black guy with fried chicken was?
0: Oh, you also have a, a, a black ghost golfer. Uh, that taught a guy how to play golf and, and uh so you have these weird movies with these 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 characters. Uh, yeah, but I, I think that also or knew how to play football. He was playing football already. And that family had the connection to Ole Miss and, and pushing through the system. This is basically this is some kind of weird, strange booster format. So I wonder how it would look now in the era of NIL um and and how, how college athletes are now taking advantage of their own financial futures, how would a Michael Orr story play out in 2023?
1: I wanted to follow up on the Eric enemy story, and we're talking to Xavier Pope, cultural contributor to Cofield & Company, attorney out of Chicago. Um, I saw some sports talkers who had always you know, kind of railed against the enemy isn't an NFL head coach because of racism. They, they jumped on this one and they're like, see, I told you. It wasn't because he's black that he's not a head coach. It's because he's abrasive, and Ron Rivera and the players just confirmed it. I told you, those
0: same fans get excited when they get "quote unquote" an old school coach that yells at players, grabs their helmets, hmm. and believes in the type of hazing by Pat Gerald. Right. But it turns around; you see a, a black coach doing something that they would normally love, and then now he now he plays into these negative stereotypes about black violence and criminality and. And and being ye- yelling and dangerous, I I I think that was just such a weird thing. But part for the course, a lot of the hypocrites out there. Uh,
1: yeah, I can't. I still don't know if Ron Rivera just made a mistake. He's done it before. He said a little too much to the media, or maybe there's something deeper here. And you know, Rivera, uh, I don't know, feels threatened. Never wanted be enemy. Uh, you know, it's Del Rio and and uh, Rivera oh. against the enemy. Maybe he sees the enemy as coach in waiting. I'm not sure. It's a it's a weird vibe. Um, do me a favor, Xavier stay on hold. And we're going to talk about Sage Steele, who is a uh, champion of First Amendment rights. So we're going to address her leaving ESPN on the way back. Now, back to Cofield and Company in the Finley Toyota Studio on ESPN Las Vegas. All right, rolling on with Xavier Pope here on a Thursday. He is in Chicago. He is one of our legal insiders. All right, Xavier, I know people had a lot of strong feelings on Sage Steele. Um, You know, you remember going back to COVID, Sage Steele felt very uncomfortable kind of getting squashed by ESPN on some fronts and they came up with a settlement. She moved on and then I think she kind of stirred things up and she knew what she was doing by saying, I'm parting ways with ESPN and I'm going to land somewhere where I can exercise my first amendment rights. And, you know, a lot of people reacted to that. What was she talking about?
0: Uh, I think that she just basically confused the constitutional right of uh, the First Amendment, a right free speech uh, that, that regulates government restraint of free speech, uh, with the private right, that's a constitutional right to contract, with the private right. So I think a lot of people called her out on that. And the, this is a giant contingency. It not with Elon Musk you know, saying, hey, you know, and people criticizing social media and all this, and saying, hey, I have my right to free speech. And these are the same people that were on the complete other side of this, when Colin Kaepernick got bumped out of league by the National Football League, they're, they're saying, say, oh, the NFL can kick you out of if you can do what they want. So you understand the right. You only, you only understand the right when it relates to something that you agree with. And you can misconstrue facts and everything in order to fit that narrative. And that's what she still did.
1: Well, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that, about how she felt about Kaepernick versus how she felt as kind of the Kaepernick character in the ESPN situation. Or at least she... she, she, she in her mind. In her mind, yeah. Um, <laughs> in her mind. Well, I'm sure she's going to land somewhere and have a good job. You, I, I saw you guys pointed out um, on your social media account, you and, and some of your followers had pointed out, you know, there were some moments where Sage Steele really needed to fight over the years. Like, she wanted to fight ESPN on this, but she could have fought for herself in a certain um, – in a couple of cases, like the case where Chael Sonnen came on to do an interview with her. It was gross. I mean, they were talking about something completely unrelated
0: to what happened, and in the middle of the interview, he stopped – and asked can he touch her hair, instead of saying no way, like a black woman would, would do, leans in, let her touch her hair like a pet, then remark on her hair being soft, and that it was real, to make that other black women may not, not necessarily have soft hair or real hair. It was disgusting. It was a racist. And the fact that she still leaned into that, and her response was, random, um, showed where she is in terms of being a pet for the type of politics that she supports.
2: Xavier, I've got to ask you something. Maybe this could happen in your neck of the woods. Pat Fitzgerald, he's going to get the volunteer at a local school. If your son was playing tackle football and they said, hey, we're going to bring on Pat Fitzgerald, would you be cool with that?
0: Taking my kid out the program right away. Right.
2: <laughs> it, 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 this just happened. It means
0: that the ink is still fresh on all the things that happened, and right away he's in a volunteer position. It shows a lot of privilege. I'm sort of disappointed in that suburb. Um, to, for for doing that, I know he probably goes there. That community probably rallied around him, like some of the other coaches and staff that disgustingly rallied around him after he's already gone with, you know, cats against the world or, and wearing his jersey from college, um, and to, to, to the chagrin of the university when they are trying to distance themselves from the whole situation.
1: Let's hit a real interesting situation in the NBA. James Harden's really pushing to kind of flex his muscle. <laughs> And land where he wants to land. And if the Sixers won't move him, he doesn't want to work around Daryl Morey. Is he doing the right thing? Could this backfire on him? Or maybe nothing can backfire on someone who's made as much money as he has in the NBA. And by the way, he was one of the early investors, like Kobe Bryant, in Body Armor. My guess is James Harden, unless I mean unless he's managed it poorly, has got to be worth north of like two hundred fifty million dollars. I mean, isn't that the ultimate position to be in? Like, I, you know what, I'm going to play where I want to play and play for who I want to play for or around, or I'll just walk?
0: Yeah, James Harden looks like he gives zero F um, about the situation. He's, very, he's, 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 he's invested his money wisely. He's done well financially. Um, the guy, I don't think he's necessarily chasing a championship. He's on the downside of his career right now. I mean, he give you a couple of flashes of great games here or there. Um, but he can do whatever he wants. But once you get called a liar... Did Brand, that's one of the worst insults you can give to someone. I think he just went for the jugular. I, I, I need to go to another level and call Daryl Moore a liar because that's going to carry around with Daryl Morey. other players, they have any disputes with him? Guess what's going to come up? Daryl is a liar.
1: Xavier Pope, what do you got, Tom? No,
2: oh, no, I was just laughing at uh, Darren Morey's a liar. I wanted to go to the uh, all the top three quarterbacks in the draft where it looks like all three of them, they're going to be starting. Steve disagrees with starting the rookie quarterbacks so early. Do you think that it's a good decision that all three of these young quarterbacks start week one? It's
0: a different era. I, I think that at this point there's a shorter window for coaches to be successful with young quarterbacks and to be able to, to, to have them – to give them success. I mean, we saw some young quarterbacks be successful um, – uh, over the last few years, black quarterbacks even. Um, when you see Jalen Hurts go to the Super Bowl, young quarterbacks. You've seen uh, and the guy he's played against. I mean, so I think that right now there's a short leash for coaches to be successful. And if you've got the young guy, the fans are saying, throw the kid in there and let him play.
1: Steve? Well, on the short leash thing, Bryce Young's in Carolina. Uh, Frank Reich is a first-year coach. He's not going to get two years. He's got time. Uh, There's a new coach in Houston with C.J. Stroud. Uh, There's also a new coach with the Colts and uh, Anthony Richardson. Shane Steichen's the coach. I this is going to sound really weird, but I'm comfortable with Richardson out there because he's gigantic and he's going to be able to take some hits. I think with Young and Stroud, I think it's dangerous. Like if if they're not clicking on all cylinders early, like I don't know. Did you watch any of the Jets Carolina game? I, I could not believe the officials and Reich let Bryce Young go out there and just get. Slaughter in a preseason game. Like to me, there's a risk there, and I, I don't know, man. I would be afraid of de- destroying a guy's confidence by having him out there for six, seven games, and then he gets hurt and he's throwing interceptions. I think you got to be careful.
0: If you're a young coach, yeah, and we saw Mike in his last job. It, 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 do you think that you are more interested in your career as a coach or in the development of a young quarterback? See,
1: I think it should be both. What do I, I think they're I guess it depends on the situation. I assume all three coaches are pretty safe for five years, but maybe I'm a fool. <laughs> there you go.
0: Not, not, not for long in 2023, Steve. Yeah. Well,
1: you know, the crazy one, as I said, uh, Anthony Richardson is the one I would trust playing early on for uh, safety. And by the way, Xavier, we're up against it. I appreciate it. Thank you. Love you guys. Yeah, Shane Steichen is the one guy who may feel a little pressure to, like, freaking get this going because Jim Irsay is a lunatic. And Jim Ursay could make a commitment to you you know, one year and then freaking less than 36 months later go, I'm out, you're fired.